Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. We have sung Psalm 98, and now we read Psalm 98. The heading in the original just simply says, A Psalm. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. Trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar. Let all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. May God bless that reading of His Word to us. Let's pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that we would not be here alone or just with each other. That we would not just be an assembled band. That these would not just be words read and sounded in our ears. But we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit and His great activity. That He indeed would work in mind and heart. That the word that He has inspired would be illumined in our thinking And it would impact the way that we live and even the way that we feel. Help us to think and live and feel aright in light of the glories of your Son. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. These were the opening words in Isaac Watts' great paraphrase of this psalm that's before us this evening. Now, in in good Scottish fashion, you have to remember, there's a difference between a psalm that is uh, strictly translated as best we can out of Hebrew into English, English in a metrical fashion versus a paraphrase. In a paraphrase, the the author has much more freedom, much more range, because it's not just a translation of words out of Hebrew and into English with a little fix for rhythm and and, uh, meter. But rather it also includes, in addition to this linguistic translation, a theological one. A translation out of the shadow and form of the Old Testament language into the form of the New Testament reality of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts took Hebrew and turned it into English. And he turned Hebrew verse into English verse. But he did so also doing an old covenant shadow to new covenant reality translation in the same moment, in the same breath. 
in his famous paraphrase, Watts has captured the spirit and the ultimate end discussed and taught and rejoiced over in Psalm 98, not just translating the words. And if we were to put that end, that ultimate end, into just one sentence, it would be this. That Israel, that all the nations, and that all of creation are blessed by the coming of the Lord. We are blessed by the coming of the Lord. The psalm begins in the first three verses with its emphasis upon Israel and her need her command, her requirement to sing, to rejoice, to give thanks to the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. This opening stanza is addressed to the people of Israel as they gather together in worship. This psalm, having been sung in temple worship, having been sung in synagogue worship, having also perhaps been sung also in the tabernacle before it, This psalm is one that was on the lips and in the hearts of the children of Israel. And the opening line should sound familiar to you. It comes from Psalm 96 that was our opening call to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to to the Lord all the earth. The opening line is the same and then the modifiers after are changed and they are changed and adapted to focus on God and His blessing as the covenant God of Israel. The new song is therefore here given more of its substance. It's not just some ephemeral idea that one day there'll be a new song. We are here learning that the new song is about the new covenant, about the new covenant and the covenant of grace, that God's unfolding plan of redemption will not be resisted and will bring the ultimate end of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in great and joyous triumph. He secures salvation for us by His divine acts. Verse 1 begins, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Wonderful things by His right hand and holy arm. This is a, an anthropomorphism. It's a way of speaking about God using human terms that we very naturally understand. It's God's right hand and His holy arm that are accomplishing His great salvation. In other words, it's something divine. This salvation is something that God is doing. It's not that fallen, sinful men and women and boys and girls like you and me can accomplish the purpose and the agenda of divine salvation. It is rather that God Himself does it. His mighty divine acts are what bring about our salvation. He is the one who has worked for salvation. And we ourselves are merely the beneficiaries of this great and awesome gift. And God's acts are His self-revelation, not just to His people, but to all the earth. Verse 2 says, The Lord has made known His salvation, has revealed His righteousness 
in the sight of the nations. And so God has done this great thing. He has accomplished the salvation of His people, having set His love upon them from of old, having promised them that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, having provided a a stable stage for redemptive history uh, on which it could be acted out, on on having declared the the covenant blessings that would come, inheritance of heaven uh, to be the people of God and and in fellowship with Him and, and for Him to be our God and us to be His people. All of these great covenant of grace promises are here declared not just in the ears of the people of Israel, but also before all the nations on display for them as they look, whether across the water or across a border, and they look and they see Israel, they learn of God's great salvific program. The children of Israel are just a a little bit different than all the peoples of the world. All the other nations were, were different. Israel was supposed to be unique, a peculiar people. Different than the rest. They had the covenant promises. And they had all the accoutrements that went with it and helped point them in mind and heart and life towards Yahweh and towards Him alone for their salvation. They had the priesthood. There were priests who who carried out prayers and offered up incense. There, There was the tabernacle and then the temple. There was the dwelling of God with man. Uh, There was the whole ritual aspect of Old Testament worship. Sacrifices, morning and evening, special festival days and and special celebrations where families would come from all over the nation and descend on Jerusalem on that mighty hill of God to worship Him as He had appointed. This was different than the Canaanite nations. This was different than than the far-off peoples in Babylon or or down in Egypt or or over in Tyre. They, They were different, the children of Israel. And by all of the glories of God's worship, the Lord was appointing that something of His salvation was to be announced and, and held up to the nations. They were God's special chosen people. Not because of themselves, not because they were so great. God set His love on him. He chose the children of Abraham. He lavished them with the gift of His special revelation. He spoke to them. He spoke sweetly to them. He wooed their hearts. He saved their souls. And He blessed them even in outward ways, so that they and all the nations could learn that He was their God and they were His people. Oh, God revealed Himself through the way that He dealt with Israel. It was an announcement. It was like one of those flashing billboards as you ride as you ride down I-10 towards the city. One after a number, they declare all sorts of things. God through His mighty acts, declared to the nations the greatness and glory of His salvation in all His dealings with Israel. It's not too much to say that the nations could see, they could see in visible light 
They could see something of God's great and glorious covenant love and work as He shed upon His people His uncreated light, that divine light of blessing and glory that you always can't trace every root and dimension and aspect of, but that you know that God has His hand of blessing in the life of one who has been transformed and made a believer The children of Israel were singled out by God's axe and His right hand and holy arm. And all the nations could see, and they could see that God was good. Remember the queen of Sheba? Did she not travel a long distance? Did she not come to see the glories of God? All the nations knew They knew or they should have known the goodness and greatness of the Lord. And God's covenant dealing with His people, His covenant love for them was never forgotten. Verse 3 says, He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Oh, the Lord deals covenantally with His people. And so He dealt with them faithfully according to His covenant promises. He didn't just wake up in the morning and sort of whimsically say, well, what, what shall I do for Israel today? How, how, will I, uh, how will I relate to them? What will I think of them and, and all of their action and inaction? What shall I do today? No, God had a plan from of old. He had revealed it. It was a plan from before all eternity and He revealed it to His people. He made unshakable promises to them because He didn't promise based upon the earth or or the sky or the trees or the sea. He he didn't base His promises upon them and what kind of folks they were going to be and whether they were going to listen and cooperate happily with Him. No, He based His covenant promises upon Himself, upon His own resolve, Upon his own choice, his own nature, his own bedrock reliability. There's nothing in all the universe more sure and safe than a promise of God. Because he is holy. And so God's relationship with his people has always been covenantal. In all of the full spectrum of of that biblical glory. You know, we in our own day sometimes are tempted to kind of cut God's covenant and God's covenant promises and His covenant blessings down to some sort of bite-sized bit or or to reduce it down to something just a little bit more manageable for us to uh, handle and perhaps control. For example, sometimes uh, covenant gets redefined as just sort of, you know, covenant, you know, family. Familial relations. Or other times it's covenant redefined narrowly, reducedly, as being headship. It's not just family, it's the father, the the patriarchal movement. That's what covenant really is all about. Or sometimes we're tempted to, to view covenant in terms of Conservative economics or a certain form of politics in our modern era. There are other groups that define covenant as, uh, 
Well, it's kind of that thing that happens in a coffee house. We all have Starbucks and we sort of feel good and you can smell those leather chairs and, and, the, and the scent of the coffee in the air. That's what covenant is. It's that, it's that moment. It's that uh, voluntary, informal kind of relationship. Others are more into lines of power and control and so they think of covenant as narrowly being reduced to submission, to submission to the head, submission to the patriarch, or, or submission to the elders as if that captures all the essence of God's relationship with man. Others view covenant as isolation, that they cut themselves off from all of these other social and fellowship kind of relations. And the thing that really matters is the safety of them alone with God. That is covenant relationship. Well, all of these things in substance, have to be examined and debated. There, there are at certain times and certain places things about each one of these that, that are very helpful and nice. Who, who doesn't love family? Family's wonderful. Unless your family is, is hate-filled and abusive and wicked and evil, and, and really it's, uh, it's uh, out of self-preservation that you need to take two steps back from all the chaos. Who doesn't recognize that headship or, or leadership or, or even submission to elders is, is not a good thing? And it's true. There are times and places, thank God, where that is good and great and glorious. And there are others in which you're... Have we not known times when, when the leaders of church governments even were telling us to do wicked and horrible things? To affirm that which is against the Scripture. To, to practice that which is against the Bible. And, and in those situations, no, that's not covenantal at all. Or the idea of a certain kind of relationship or community as it now is boiled down to in so many circles. These, this can be a nice thing. You know, I even like coffee. I even like Starbucks coffee. But you know, Costco Kirkwood coffee tastes sweeter because it's cheaper. And I like that too. The point is, is that all of these things may or may not have their life at a place in the Christian life at a certain time. But, but the covenant, the covenant of grace, God being our covenant God and we being His people, cannot be reduced or squished down or, or minimized to any one of these things. The covenant of grace is bigger than all of these. And we have to remember that the multiplicity of responsibilities and blessings and benefits in the covenant all modify one another. God is not finite. He's not small like you and me. He is great. He is infinite. He is eternal. And all of these things find in their right place and right way their ultimate ground in the goodness of God Himself towards His people. We are to be committed to the Lordship of Christ as the head and keeper of the covenant of grace and not to some kind of reductionism which oftentimes is little more than early 20th century fundamentalism dressed in new clothes. Right, left, and center, they seem to always enjoy the new clothes for the same thing which is less than God and less than His covenant of grace and less than the blessings that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord 
O Israel, sing to the Lord a new song, the new song of the great covenant of God. And then the psalmist turns to the nations. And in verse 4 he says, Nations, shout to the Lord. Verse 4 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. It's not just Israel that owes God praise. Certainly Israel does. She has more reason than any other nation to gather together and to sing praise to the Lord, to sing this psalm and all the other ones. And the new Israel has all the reason to sing every song and every hymn and every spiritual song in the book which glorifies God and brings praise in a biblical and Christ-centered sort of way. This is a general creational obligation of all men and all nations to worship the Lord. But specifically singled out in this psalm, so interestingly, is the singing of God's people. They are to make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, to break forth in joyous song and sing praises. And then as if with a hammer, over and over and over again, we're told more about how to sing. Sing praise to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Now, I must tell you, I wear many hats at uh, Christ Church. One of them is not working in the music department. Miss Gladys is much better at playing the piano. I think I tried after services one day playing chopsticks for her, and I flunked that test. Years ago, a guy down the street from where I grew up tried to teach me how to play the guitar. I would go down there every week and I would try to play. He would give me things to practice. It was some of the most terrifying childhood experiences I ever went through. I could never play what he asked me to play. And you know, I'm not really much of an expert on instruments. I, I probably couldn't pick a lyre out of a lineup. A trumpet I would know. One of my best friends in high school, he played a trumpet and, and in sixth grade playing before the entire auditorium at Aiken Elementary School, his valve broke. And I don't know how that happens, but it sounded awful and he turned red-faced and ran off the stage in absolute embarrassment and so I know what a, a trumpet is. And the word horn here, I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion there's something of a parallelism here, but perhaps it's a separate, a third intru- instrument Uh, that's being listed. Uh, Don't worry if you're as challenged musically as I am. The list of instruments here is not exalted. It's not that we're in trouble tonight because we used a piano rather than a trumpet or a horn or a lyre. Although I think the lyre and the piano are in kind of... Are those like in the same family or genre? I don't know. I'm going to have to talk to Gladys about this afterwards. These are listed not as an exhaustive cataloging of what's allowed, but rather they're a part for the whole. And this is a poetic genre. And so instruments that that conjure up in people's minds 
great drama. Like, I don't know much about the lyre, but I, I gather that you kind of pluck it in a certain way, and it has, there's, certain, there's a certain flair to it. There's something to watch. It's kind of like going to a Japanese restaurant. And the trumpets and the horn, you know, you cannot just hear them. You also feel them. They shake you. In your inner core of your being, there's, there's something about the physicality of the whole thing. But the point of all of these is not as an end in themselves. Break forth into joyous song. Sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Musical accompaniment can work in a number of different ways. Uh, Two main ones is, is they can help us stay on key. And that level of help in some congregations is absolutely essential. Have you ever been to a congregation that, that the piano was just sort of out of tune and so was the congregation? Now, we had that years ago in, in Lebanon Presbyterian Church in Learned Mississippi. You see, we had two buildings. We had the new building that was built in 1912, as I remember. And that's where we normally met for corporate public worship. And, and we even had air conditioning, although we did not leave that on most of the time. But then there was the old sanctuary that was out in the country. They, they had originally had the community there at the top of the hill, and, and, and they, had a, they had a drought for several years in a row, and the wells went dry, and so everybody moved to the low part of the county. But they left the old church building there. It was a fascinating thing. And we would hold fifth Sunday services in that building. And that building included uh, no air conditioning. Uh, it didn't have electric lights. As a matter of fact, it didn't have any electricity at all. If, if we ever held an evening service, which we did once on a Christmas Eve, I think it was, we, um, we used lantern light to sing, candle light to sing by. It was just glorious. All the relatives are buried around the church. You know, it's the graveyard now. And uh, we would go in there and sing on a, on a fifth Sunday as best we could because, you see, the, the sanctuary was home to worship of God on uh, the fifth Sunday uh, of any month uh, during the year and also the home to about what seemed like two or three hundred wasps. And they bred inside of the old piano that sat there in the sanctuary undisturbed most of the time. So, so one of the... Uh, uh, one of the duties of the deacons before a fifth Sunday was to go out with, with a copious amount of wasp spray and, and seek to spray down the inside of the piano. Of course, it never stayed in tune. Uh, depending summer or winter, it was either flat or sharp. And singing in that place was therefore a challenge. We had no instrument to keep us in tune. But you know, there was something romantic, and there was something historic, and there was something rather moving even about the difficulties that we had to stay on key. Thank God that we have aid and help in staying on key and having our hearts, therefore, tuned to the glory of God. There's another thing going on in in this era's musical worship that we need to keep in mind. Uh, There's something typological happening here, not just something practical. As the people of God sang to His glory in the tabernacle, in the temple, as 
as the dramatic worship, particularly the Levites and others, was done, they were pointing to something. Pointing to something beyond themselves, beyond their own voices, beyond their own musical ability. They were pointing to something for our blessing and for our benefit, that we might learn it, and therefore that we might appreciate the blessings of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. They were pointing to the Holy Spirit that Jesus pours out. The Holy Spirit, working in the heart and life of a believer, transforming them from death to life, giving them joy and rejoicing before God in worship, that was being pointed to or typologically symbolized in this ceremonial worship fashion in which this psalm was first sung. Oh, the lyre and the trumpet and the horn, they emphasize for us, in addition to keeping us on tune, those great high and exultant moments in our Christian lives where we just feel like our hearts are are launched to the sky in thankfulness to God for every blessing that He gives. I know this may come as a shock to a Presbyterian congregation, but you know... Life is not always straight line and flat emotionally. It's okay to smile and to rejoice. Do you know it's even not necessarily sinful to to clap your hands and stomp your feet in the right occasion and time. God teaches us and all the nations to sing from the heart in glory to God. O nations, worship the Lord, shout to His glory and convert, they're taught here. Verses 7 and 9, let the sea roar in all that fills it. Yes, creation is referred to, but just before. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. To acknowledge God as King, to bow the knee, to kiss the Son, to come in joyful submission to Him, praise-filled glory on your lips, adoring His name. That is the picture held up here in song to the nations, that they might give glory to the Lord. And then all of creation joins in. It's like a chorus that's added from the side. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. Creation. Glorify the Lord. Here general revelation shines through creation and points us to the glory of God. Creation is personified as as roaring, as clapping, as singing to God. And if the trees and the hills and the grass, if they all cry out to the Lord, if the sea roars in glory to its Creator, should you not as well? Should I not as well? Should we not give glory to God? And at this particular time in redemptive history, all of creation is reaching a crescendo As it glorifies God, for you see, general revelation is serving to set the stage and and to pique our enthusiasm for the appreciation of the special revelation that's on its way. Even the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It won't be long. It won't be long. Get ready. It won't be long is the song that we hear all of creation singing. And the Lord promises to defeat all of His and our enemies that He will deliver His people. We are told that He will judge the earth, that He will judge the world, and we're told the qualities with which He will judge. Righteousness. And He'll judge the peoples with equity. As He judges, there will be deliverance for those under the blood. Under the blood of Jesus and you are safe. Your sins have been washed away. You, you are on solid ground. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And for those that are not, who are not under the blood, the judgment of God means destruction. They're cast into outer darkness. They have rejected the covenant-keeping God and His people and instead have embraced the darkness. And there they find out what darkness really is all about. But to those who look forward to it, for those who look and long and pray and sing and rejoice, all will be set right for them when the Lord comes again to judge. For they are under the blood of Christ our Lord and the covenant of grace blessings have reached their fulfillment upon their heads in Him. Oh, Watts's paraphrase, Joy to the World, is all about the second coming of Christ. And we sing it at Christmas, at Advent, because there's so many parallels also with the first coming of Christ. Oh, He comes. And brethren, the good news is also that He will come again. It's only at His second coming that every heart will prepare Him room in the new heavens and in the new earth. It's only in the second coming that we will see Him as reigning, that the Savior will reign, that sins and sorrows will no longer grow. I have news for you. In the time between the times in which you're living your Christian life right now, sins and sorrows do grow. What happens strangely in a fallen world in which grace has come is the two opposite things happen at the same time. Grace grows, and the gospel grows to fill all the earth, and there is sinful and wicked rebellion on the part of the devil and his minions, and they go from evil deed to darker and more wicked evil deed. When will thorns no longer infest the ground? When will His blessings flow as far as the curse is found? When will He rule the world with truth and grace? And when will He make the nations prove the glories of His righteousness? The psalmist tells us this evening to get ready for Jesus is coming. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that You would fit us for the return of our Lord. Fit us with joy. Give us the joy of the Holy Spirit. Give us the kind of Christian life that brings You glory. We pray that in the church that we might know of Your goodness and rejoice and sing that new song before You in all of our lives. And we pray for the nations. We pray for the lost 
and for the rebellious and for those trapped in darkness. And we ask, O Heavenly Father, that You would from all the nations gather in those appointed to eternal life and that You would give them Your new song in their hearts and that they might live to glorify Your name. And we ask that You would give us ears that we might hear as we wait for Your coming the joyous sounds and praises from all of the created order that we might be ready for His appearance. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.